The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Numbers 21. We're going to take a break from Romans today, and, and uh, I always like to preach a Thanksgiving sermon uh, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, uh, because I, I just think it's important to emphasize that thankfulness is a very important biblical theme, and uh, I think a theme that we sometimes neglect and uh, is really worth emphasizing, and so we honor the Lord uh, when we give thanks for His blessings and acknowledge His goodness, uh, but we also uh, dishonor the Lord when we complain about our circumstances, and when we despise the blessings that He has given. And uh, the Lord uh, has just been driving that truth home to me the last few weeks as I have been uh, working my way through the Pentateuch and my devotional reading, and especially as I just recently finished up reading the book of Numbers. And, um, you know, it's really incredible to, to read through those stories of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings, and, and to see that God was incredibly kind to his people. He sent 10 plagues to deliver them from Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. And he provided food and water and protection and so many wonderful things. And yet, rather than thanking God for his blessings, what did Israel do? Again and again, they complained about God's provision. And they accused Moses, and ultimately God, of being unkind. They said that God was not good to them. And it's striking that that of all the things that that Moses could emphasize during those wilderness wanderings, the thing that he emphasizes over and over is the sin of complaining. So so it's clearly a big deal. And and, and so, and it's, it's striking to us because I don't think most of us tend to think of complaining as that big of a problem. In fact, we complain all the time. And and I bet if, if, if somehow you had set in front of you a list of every complaint that you uttered or that you meditated on this week, I bet all of us would be very ashamed. And so we complain all the time. And in fact, complaining, I think, certainly falls in the category of respectable sins among Christians that that you can keep your respectable Christian card and complain quite frequently. Because we all tend to complain all the time. But the Pentateuch declares that complaining is a serious sin. It is both extremely arrogant and it is always a slap in the face of God. And therefore, we need to replace complaining with thanksgiving. And I'd like to consider a famous illustration of this fact in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. So let's go ahead and read through the story there. It says, Then they sent out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. 
So the people came to Moses, excuse me, and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. So the passage begins by describing for us the evil of complaining. And, um, you know, the, the, obviously, uh, I think we understand, right, that, that Israel's complaining here was, was evil. But, but if you put yourself in Israel's shoes, I think we probably, most of us, would make the exact same mistake. That's because... By the time this story takes place, Israel has now entered the 40th year of their wilderness wanderings. And and as you can see on the map up here, uh, Israel is now, uh, they've spent most of these 40 years, they've spent most of these 40 years in this region here to the south of Canaan and to the west of Edom. And, And so they've been wandering around there for quite some time. And uh, God said they had to stay in the wilderness, of course, for 40 years. But now the 40 years are almost over. The people are excited to go into the land. And so Moses, in Numbers chapter 20, he sends a letter to the king of Edom. And he asks the king of Edom if they can pass through the land of Edom on their way uh, up and around and and on their way. You know, they want to travel basically right through here and, and come up to the Jordan River. And so Moses writes a very kind letter. You can read it in Numbers chapter 20. And, um, but, but, of course, he writes the letter, and the king of Edom says, no way. And in fact, if you try and travel through our land, we will fight you, and we will attack you. And that put Moses in a really difficult spot. Because God had commanded Israel that they were not to attack the Edomites, because The Edomites were their brothers. So remember that the Edomites are the children of Esau. And and so so, so he's in a difficult spot. And uh, and you can imagine how discouraging that must have been for Israel. But Moses obeys the Lord, and they begin this massive detour around the land of Edom. That is quite the detour, isn't it? And... um, but, but chapter 21 begins with the fact that almost probably within a few days of them taking off on this long journey, the king of Arad, which is up in the land of Canaan, he attacks them and, and he takes some of the Israelites captive. They pray to God and, and God delivers. In fact, chapter number, Numbers 21 verse 3 says, the Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus, the name of the place was called So what an awesome moment, because this is their first victory over Canaanite peoples. And so God delivers the the people of Arad into their hands, and they're very excited. But of course, great highs are oftentimes followed by great lows. And that's what happened as the Jews resumed their journey. And so verse 4 tells us that they uh, set out on the journey uh, to go uh, again, to travel all the way around Edom here. And, uh, and, and you can imagine how this goes. They've been wandering now for over 39 years. 
based on a promise of God that he was going to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And they had been on the edge of that land. And now they're traveling south. They're going away from the land. And and you can imagine the people thinking, how silly. We just obliterated the people of Arad. We should fight Edom. We should just march right through their territory and kick them out of our way. And verse 4 says, the people became impatient because of the journey. Does that ever happen on your road trips? That's a, that, that sounds like our road trips, you know, like, you know, we haven't even made it out of Victorville yet. And are we there yet? And so you can imagine the people. They're traveling along. It's hot. We've been doing this a long time. You know, wagon wheel breaks, the sheep aren't cooperating, the kids are cranky. And probably just days after God gave Israel this incredible victory over Arad, the people forget what God had done, and they begin to complain. Again, verse 5 says, the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Now, this was not Israel's first complaint. In fact, they were well-practiced in complaining at this point. And their complaining began just just within days of of them leaving Egypt because when they were cornered in at at the Red Sea, when the Egyptians were coming down, that was the first time that they began to complain against Moses. And just three days later, after they had crossed the Red Sea, they were complaining again. And Exodus and Numbers record instance after instance where Israel complained and complained against Moses and against God. And what's so incredible is that the backdrop of all of these complaints is God's incredible provision. God brought them out of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He killed the most powerful army in the world. He made manna appear on the ground every day. He made birds fall out of the sky so they could eat them. He brought water out of rocks in the desert. It's incredible provision. But the reality is, is that sinners, all right, and let's include Kit and all of you, we have an incredible capacity to forget the blessings of God and to be discontent. Incredible capacity. And we can be very dramatic about our discontentment. You know, notice the complaint. Go go back to chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, because this gives some good context. Chapter 11, and this is an earlier complaint. You know, again, they don't have the food that they want and the water that they want. And so Numbers 11, verse 4 says, The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of bedellium. The people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it into mortar. So, so, so I mean, they're, they're, they're whining. They're like, oh, we had it so good in Egypt. You know, they forgot the slavery part. You know, just remember it. They remember onions, you know, which 
You know, I don't know, some of you, that, that, that's probably a hard one to take in. You know, and, and, so, and so they sound, I mean, don't they sound like your kids complaining about eating their peas? You know, they act like God is making them eat death. And it's ridiculous. But sometimes, you're no better and neither am I. We know how to lay the drama on thick when we are complaining. And before long, we, believe, we deceive ourselves into believing our own nonsense. I mean, they actually accuse Moses of bringing them out in the desert. Back in our chapter, in chapter 21, they accuse Moses of bringing them out in the desert to die. I mean, you'd think after 39 years that they would be past that one. But they're not. They're still there. And, 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 so, and so then they go on and say there is no food and no water. And Moses is thinking, you collected manna this morning. But, but again, complaining doesn't have to be rational. It doesn't have to be, make sense. And so then after saying they have no food or water, what do they turn around and say next? We loathe this miserable food. So they just admitted they have food. And, and, and it's worth noting that this is the most severe complaint that we have recorded in the scriptures against the manna. That the verb that they use here uh, for miserable food, it, it represents a curse. And so they cursed the very thing that God had miraculously used to sustain them for 39 years. And, and unless we look down on them, realize that, that you've probably done something very similar. You know, God's given you a warm, comfortable home that keeps you dry when it rains, that gives you shade in the summer, cool in the summer, warm in the, in the winter, and you walk around and gripe about your stupid home. Or guys, have you ever yelled at your stupid car that drives you everywhere safely? And even worse, God has given you wonderful family and friends. And do you ever gripe about your family? complain about the people who are dearest to you. Now, now we tend to dismiss all of that as irrational. You know, we, we lose it, we gripe, we complain, then we said, you know, I, I, I just wasn't myself there. That wasn't me. I don't know where that came from. But God doesn't see it that way. God sees it as a serious sin. And, and complaining is, is a serious issue for at least three reasons. There's many more that we could give. And so the first reason is that complainers boast irrationally. Now, now we like to think that we're really something. And we all like to think that I deserve to be treated like royalty. You know, my kids should appreciate all I do for them, how wonderful I am, and, and, and everyone should see how great and glorious I am. And then we blame every conflict on other people. And we ignore our own warts. And we deceive ourselves and we make ourselves out. You know, you know, we, again, we can be so dramatic. We, we make ourselves out to be the worst victims of abuse and injustice. We are great at throwing our own personal pity parties. And, and, then we're, and it's all childish. It's all arrogant. And if you are going to cultivate genuine thanksgiving, it begins with seeing yourself as the broken sinner that you are. You are your own biggest problem. The people in your life are not your biggest problem. You are your biggest problem. 
And you don't deserve anything from God other than condemnation. And so thankfulness always begins with seeing yourself as the undeserving sinner that you are. So that you can then see God's incredible kindness all around you. So, so, so recognize the irrationality, the arrogance that stands behind all of your complaining and repent. And then a second issue with complaining is that complainers forget God's blessings. Now, Psalm 78 offers some wonderful commentary on Israel's unfaithfulness during the wilderness years. And I want to read a section of it. And, uh, and notice in particular the verbs that God uses to describe Israel's sins in the wilderness. He says how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the adversary. And then he also, in spite of all this, God led forth his own people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them safely so that they did not fear, but the sea engulfed their enemies. Now, God did so much for Israel. And yet he highlights in that text the fact that they did not remember the blessings of God. And so often, we are no better. God gives us blessing upon blessing. You know, we sin, and God remains faithful. We, we forget the blessings of God, and we crave everything that God has not given us. And, and therefore, thanksgiving has to be a daily discipline of the Christian life. Not just an annual holiday. You know, the question, because the question is not if God has been good to you, if you have things to be thankful for. The question is, do you see them and do you give thanks? So remember and rejoice in the blessings of God. Don't be so short-sighted that all you see is the selfish interest right in front of your eye. Step back and remember all of the goodness of God in your life. And then a third problem with complaining is that complainers ultimately condemn God as evil. Now that might sound strong, but, but, but every complaint that you voice about God's purpose for your life is ultimately an attack on God's character. And Psalm 106 also reflects on Israel's years in the wilderness. And, and notice this commentary on Israel that that also reflects on us. It says, Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindness, but rebelled by the sea. That word rebel, I mean, all they did was complain. But, but God says they rebelled at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, He saved them for the sake of His name, that He might make His power known. They made a calf in Horeb, and worshipped a molten image. Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wonders in the land of Ham, and awesome things by the Red Sea. And then look at this one. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe in His word, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. 
And the psalmist there does an excellent job of pointing out that every complaint is an assault on the character of God. And when you complain, you are not merely assaulting your circumstances. You are assaulting the goodness of God. And every parent gets this. Like if you ever, you know, you, you, you cook, a, you know, you, try, you, you, you care about your family, you spend time cooking this really nice meal, or maybe you take your family out to eat, or, you know, you put together some great party, and then the kids, you know, they just gripe. Ah, oh, I didn't get to get pop. Or, why don't I get to get this? Or, oh, you know, you did the wrong thing. And when you have invested yourself in pleasing your kids and they do that, I mean, you feel it in your soul because they are accusing you of not being good to them. And yet we do the same thing to God every time. Every complaint is an attack on the goodness of God. And we need to confess it as the sin that it is, and we need to replace it with faith in the goodness of God. Now, I recognize that there are times in life where you cannot see the goodness of God in every circumstance. And the Bible doesn't run from that fact, right? The the laments of Scripture teach us that that when we don't understand and we can't see the goodness of God in in our lives, that, that we should go to God and say, God, I don't understand. What are you doing here? What's going on? This appears to be wrong. But but the key is, is that when we voice those things to God, we we always need to do so with a heart of humility and submission. We say, God, I don't understand, but I know that you are good. So so God's not saying we we just, you know, put our our headphones on and forget the problems of life. We we confront them, and, and we can't be unrealistic about the challenges of life. But through it all, we must believe in the goodness of God. We need to remember the evidences of his goodness and refuse to complain, and we must continue by his grace to trust him. Well, returning to the story, Israel blew it. And verse 6 drives this home by describing the judgment of God. So verse 6 says that in response to this complaint, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Now, that is quite the judgment, isn't it? You know, I used this one on my kids a few times this week. You know, like, they'd, uh, you know, complain, and, you know, God sent fiery serpents, son, you know, and you don't want God to do that to you, all right? All in jest. You know, but, but, but it's quite the judgment. And, and, and I remember this story, you know, this story stood out to me as a kid, and, uh, and I, in particular, you know, I imagine, I remember as a kid imagining these fiery serpents as literally on fire, you know, as if they were these like demonic creatures. And uh, it's fun to think about it that way, but it's probably not true. No, no, what is far more likely is that there was a particular species of snake that, that, ven- that, that their venom would, would make it feel like your body was on fire. And so the people called them fiery serpents because of the effects that the venom had on the body. And it was a miserable, agonizing pain that that this venom would cause. And and the text tells us that it ultimately would lead to death. So so these are not supernatural snakes. No, no, in fact, there are several snakes that are native to this area. 
uh, that co- possibly could be in view. And so uh, one likely option is a snake called the carpet viper, which is common in, in Northeast Africa and, and in the Arabian Peninsula where all this is taking place. And, and this snake actually bites and kills more people than any other snake in the world. And so, but whatever snake it was, you know, just imagine the chaos uh, of this scene. You know, all of a sudden, God causes a multitude of these snakes to descend on the camp, and they begin to aggressively bite people. And there's nowhere you can go to get away, right? Because everyone's living in tents. So, so ladies, I mean, some of you, you cannot imagine a more horrific scene than, than a ton of, of poisonous snakes descending on you while you are in a tent. It's horrible. It's a nightmare. But it wasn't a dream. And people are screaming. The victims are agonizing while their bodies feel like they're on fire with this venom. And God says that many of the people of Israel died. It was a horrible scene. And it wasn't just for a few moments. This scene probably stretched on for for several days, maybe a few weeks. Yeah, because snake venom doesn't, general, doesn't kill people instantaneously. It takes time for snake venom to kill people. So terror, agony, and sorrow fill the camp. And God did all of this because of something that you and I do without thought all the time. God did this because they complained. So have you ever been angry at God? Have you ever despised God's blessings or been bitter about what God has not done for you? Have you ever said something like, I hate my life? Do you ever go days without thanking God for his blessings because you've convinced yourself that you have nothing to be thankful for? Maybe that's where you are today. We just sang several songs about the goodness of God, and and maybe your heart did not resonate with any of it. Because you don't really see God as good in in your circumstances. You're frustrated at life, and you may not want to admit it, but you're frustrated at God. I hope that you will admit that you are not just despising your circumstances. You are despising the God of heaven. And so see it for what it is and repent. Now, now again, I'm sure some of you are going through some really hard things. and, And God continually invites you in Scripture to bring your concerns, your frustrations, your confusion to God. You know, you can also lean on a brother or sister in Christ. You know, you're you're struggling, you're you're wrestling, you're trying to see through the darkness of a difficult circumstance. And it might be that there's a godly brother and sister that, you can come, that can come alongside you and, you know, and help you see clearly through that. There, there's nothing wrong with that. But do not tolerate bitterness towards God. And then replace your bitterness with thankfulness. Now, God's blessings are everywhere if you just take the time to notice them. We, we know Christ in the gospel. We're going to heaven someday. You have reason to give thanks. God meets your needs. He blesses you with family and friends and good things everywhere. 
There are, there are so many good things. So make a choice by God's grace to replace your complaining with thankfulness. Well, again, return to the story. Israel was in a dire place as they endured God's wrath. But thankfully, the story isn't over because it concludes with the mercy of God. And, um, and, and thankfully, uh, God's judgment was severe, but it was effective. Because the people come to Moses, and notice what they say in verse 7. It says, so the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. Because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Now, now that might sound like a simple statement. But it's actually one of the strongest confessions that's recorded in the Pentateuch. In Israel, doesn't make excuses. They don't whine. They don't say this is unfair that God is doing this to us. No, they just say, we have sinned. We have sinned against God, and we have sinned against God's servant, Moses. And folks, that's what we should always do when we sin. Don't make excuses. You know, don't say, well, if God would change my circumstances, then I would love him, and I'd serve him, and I'd be thankful, because that is a lie. Don't blame shift. Call your sin what it is. And then what we see here is they asked Moses to pray for relief. They seek God's grace. And God answers in verse 8. Again, verse 8 says, The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. God promises mercy, and he provides a way for Israel to escape death. But, but he does so in a very unusual way. So first of all, it's unusual because in most of God's previous judgments, when, when Israel prays, he just simply cuts off the source of pain. But, but there's no indication that when they pray to God, God just makes all the snakes go away. In fact, there's, there's very strong indication in the text that the snakes continue to be around because verse 9 implies that the people are still getting bit after the snake is put up. So, so the snakes are still there. And we don't know why God does that. But maybe he did that to force Israel to continue looking to him in faith. They needed this lesson pounded into them. More than they needed God to just eliminate the, the, the source of frustration quickly. But what is especially unique is that God commanded Moses to mold and mount a bronze serpent. Now, that's really odd because the snakes here, the snakes are the cause of death, right? They're not the source of life. So why in the world would God say that you need to make the source of death and look at that in order to live? And as well, snakes are not beloved creatures. Most people don't like snakes. Now, now I know there are some of you in this room who love snakes, and you like to study them, and you have pet snakes, and you let those pet snakes crawl over you, all over you, and we love you, but you're weird, all right? <laughs> Most people don't like snakes. They despise snakes, and that's biblical. 
All right, it's biblical, right? Because, because Satan is called a snake multiple times in Scripture. And, and in fact, snakes were cursed to crawl on their bellies after Satan deceived Eve into sinning in the Garden of Eden. So snakes are considered in Scripture to be cursed creatures. So why would God want Israel to find salvation in looking to a cursed and despised figure? Well, the reason is, is that this bronze snake was a type of a coming and far greater source of salvation. And Jesus makes that explicit in in John 3, verses 14 and 15. Now, Jesus here is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now, now we tend to romanticize the cross, and, and the cross is an awesome, awesome thing. We glory in the cross. But we also better never forget that the cross represents the curse of God. Galatians 3 verse 13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So so that verse is telling us that Jesus was cursed of God as he hung on the cross. Because he bore in his body our sin. He was cursed of God. And as a result, what what that verse is and what the Old Testament taught is that anyone who hung on a tree, anyone who was executed and hung on a tree was considered cursed of God. And so there was a very good reason why the Jews really struggled with the concept of a crucified Messiah. Because the law said anyone who was hung on a tree was cursed of God. And so when Jesus hung on the cross, it was not a beautiful scene. It was a cursed scene. It's beautiful as well. But what Jesus hanging on the cross represents the curse of God. And so when God commanded Moses to mount a bronze serpent, he foreshadowed the ultimate salvation that he would provide that would not come in some stately, honorable form. Something beautiful to the Jews. No. God was foreshadowing the fact that that he would provide salvation through a cursed Savior. Something that no one would want to look to. So so this instruction is of tremendous significance. And it beautifully binds together the Old Testament with the New and God's plan to save sinners. Well, Moses obeyed. And he had this bronze serpent made. And then they mounted this bronze serpent on a pole. And God promises in verses 8 and 9 that anyone who was bitten by the snake, if they looked at at this bronze serpent, they would live. And it's interesting to note that that the verb that God uses for look here doesn't mean that they just kind of like, you know, took a look at it, you know, Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Ah, you know, oops, I accidentally got healed because I, I didn't mean to look at it, but it accidentally... No, I mean, the, the idea behind this verb for look it is that it was a look both with understanding and faith. And, and, and so God, of course, isn't ultimately calling them to trust a snake. No, the snake victims 
we're to look at that snake with a heart of faith in God. That, that if I trust in God, and I trust the promise of God, God will save me. And we do something very similar when we are born again. We look at the cursed Savior hanging on the cross for the judgment of our own sins. And we believe that He is much more than just a humiliated criminal. We believe that He is the Son of God and that what He did on that cross is sufficient to save me from sin. And and the text tells us that when these snake victims did this, God promised that they would live. Now, verse 9 doesn't give us any details, but it says that that's exactly what happened. So imagine some guy, he's been bitten by a snake. Maybe he was bitten several days ago. And and the fire is just, I mean, it's just this overwhelming feeling of fire inside his body. His organs are beginning to shut down from the venom. And he looks at that snake with faith in the promise of God. And once he looks at that snake, suddenly the pain begins to dissipate. The fire begins, that feeling of fire begins to extinguish. He starts to regain his vitality and life. And he's amazed, right? Hopefully he is thankful to God. And hopefully he praises God that not only did God heal his body, but he forgave his sin of complaining. And I wonder if there's anyone here who has never believed on Christ because you doubt the goodness of God. Maybe you're angry at God over some trial, some hardship, you know, your childhood or some abuse that you've endured or some other circumstance of life. Maybe you fear what Christ will demand if you surrender yourself to him. You know, please see, that every day of your life, you live under the sovereign goodness and kindness of God. And every day he gives you is more than you deserve. And so repent of your ingratitude and your unbelief and and whatever else is keeping you from trusting in Christ and and be saved. And see Christ hanging on the cross, cursed with your sin, and trust that he is sufficient to save your soul. And if you do that, you can leave today alive in Christ. And Jesus' resurrection life can be yours, and he can give you strength to serve him today and hope for all of eternity. So if you have never received Christ as your Savior, look to Christ, who was raised up on the cross, cursed of God with your sin. Look to him, and God says, you will live. And for those of us who are saved, I'm guessing that that someone here is struggling with bitterness toward God. Now, you might not call it bitterness at God, but the symptoms of your life demonstrate that you are angry and bitter at God. And and you might not see it that way, but, but, but you're always irritable. I mean, it just doesn't, I mean, you just, it doesn't take anything to get you cranky and, and, and annoyed. You know, it, may, it might be that, 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 that you're, just, you're, just, you're, you're angry all the time, you're frustrated all the time, and there's just no joy. You know, or maybe, on the other side, you're, you're just melancholy. You're, you're always blue. You're Eeyore. You're Eeyore. 
You walk around pessimistic, cynical about everything. You see everything that's wrong, nothing that's right. And and maybe you're not that bad, but you just complain a lot. Now, Now, you might not always voice every complaint that's in your heart, but you always are seeing yourself as the victim. You know, and everything is bad around me. Woe is me. You're not happy unless you've got something to complain about. And please see that all anger, bitterness, and unthankfulness is ultimately directed at God. You cannot be angry at your circumstances. You cannot be angry at God's sovereign purpose for your life without being angry at God Himself. Now again, if you're hurting, all right, and and some people in here are going through major trials, if you're hurting, bring your hurt to God like, like Job did or like, the Lament, like Lamentations does, or like the Psalms oftentimes do. Again, if you need a godly friend to help you process and, and work through the circumstances of life, then find someone who can help you process it and anchor your soul to God. But address it. Repent of your sin. And, and rejoice in the goodness and faithfulness of God in your life. And then every one of us needs to choose All right, because it's a choice. We need to choose joy and thankfulness. Now, Philippians 4 verse 4 commands the Christian, rejoice in the Lord always. Not just when your circumstances are good. It says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And and 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, in everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So that is God's command to you. You choose joy. You choose thankfulness by the grace of God. And so you can begin by giving thanks for the gospel. Jesus was lifted up on the cross to bear your sin. And you should give thanks for that every day of your life. God is so good. He conquered sin and death. And give thanks that He drew you to Himself and that you are alive in Him. And then make sure that you notice every other blessing that God has given you. God is good. And God is good to you. It's up to you to see it. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are a good God. And Father, we thank You that as part of Your goodness, You challenge us where we need to be challenged. And so, God, I pray that we would all take an honest look at our hearts, our view of God, our view of our circumstances. I pray that we would repent where we need to repent. I pray that we would refocus where we need to refocus. And I pray that by your grace, we would choose joy and thankfulness. And Father, we especially today want to give thanks for Jesus who became our curse on the cross. Thank you that he bore our sin. He bore our judgment. That he was lifted up to draw sinners to himself. And God, I pray if there are any here that do not know Jesus as their Savior, that Lord, today they would look to the cursed Savior and live. They would believe on him and be saved. 
And so, God, we, we thank you for every blessing you've given us. And, Lord, help us this week not just to uh, gaze at our circumstances and thank people and find piddly little things to be thankful for, but help us to glorify you for your grace and kindness in innumerable ways because, Lord, you are good and you are kind. And Father, I pray as well for, for any who are just, just in the depths of depression, discouragement, despair. They can't see any, dark, any light at all. God, I pray that they would seek out help and encouragement. God, I pray that you give them grace to see through the fog and to trust in you. And so God, thank you for all these things. Thank you for your word and the challenges and the encouragements that it provides. In Jesus' name, amen.